When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Answer Report Podcast is brought to you by Audible. One who knows nothing can understand nothing. Plunge deeper into the darkness and your heart will grow even stronger. Good tidings, everybody. Welcome to the Ansem Report podcast. This is Ansem Report podcast number 14. Wow. Yeah, I know. Insane, right? We've been doing this for 14 weeks. That's crazy. That's like, how many months is that? That's like three and a half months? Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Anyway, I am Michael, and with me today, as always, is my brother, Jason. Hello. And we're here to talk about Kingdom Hearts, because that's what we do every week. A lot of you really enjoyed last week's episode, where we uh, uh, chronicled our list of the 13, or the Organization 13. There was 20 of them, but the Organization 13, we went through those lists, and we made those lists, and that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah. We had a comment from Youngboy Kurisu, I think I'm pronouncing that right, on YouTube that said, Next, you guys should do a Guardians of Light ranking that includes Master Yen Sid, Master Ericus, Donald, Goofy. And I think that's a great idea, and we'll do that down the road. Thank you for the comment. Uh, we got a lot of really good comments, actually. I'm not going to go through every one, but uh, one more I'm going to go through is from Kit no- Nookoi. I think I'm saying that right. N-A-O-K-I, is that right? Kit Nookoi? I don't know. That sounds right to me. And Kit said... While there's lots I want to say about a ton of points you guys brought up, I'll settle with this one. Axel asked Kyrie to call him Axel not because he was going by that name again, but because of the link in his memories between Shion and Kyrie. Uh. It can be assumed that she was an exception because it made his heart feel something, and he was still in the process of tracing that connection and trying to remember. Other characters like Sora do call him Axel, but it's more of a continuation of the joke from DDD where he was constantly correcting them. The result of this is kind of a jumbled mess where you've got Kyrie calling him Axel for thematic reasons, Sorin calling him Axel for gag reasons, and Ven calling him Lee because it's useless. But basically, I think that certain people are exempt because he favors them, and then some people just do whatever the fuck they want and call him Axel because they can. Okay. So that we, were, we talked about that at length a little bit last week, and that, that's, that's actually really good clarification, so thank you for that, Kit. Appreciate it. Kit's been a big supporter of the Answer Report podcast. Thanks, so. Kit. Thanks, Kit. Speaking of being a big supporter of the Answer Report podcast, as always, you guys can uh, rate us on iTunes. You can hit us up at answerreportpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on YouTube, on on any of the comments of the videos of, of that we post of this stuff. And uh, you can uh, hit us up on Twitter at, super, at Spike Getty Bros on Twitter. However, for some of you, that hasn't been enough. I've been getting a lot of comments recently that you guys want to be more involved in the show. You want to be involved in more discussions. We don't have anything to announce just yet, but if you're one of those people, just know we're working on something soon that's going to allow you guys to 
discuss more Kingdom Hearts with us. Yes, and become a part of the show. Become a part of the show, basically. So we're working on that. We don't have anything to announce yet, but it's coming soon, so stay tuned for that. And thank you all you guys that have shown interest in that, because that's awesome, and I, I really appreciate it. Today, our main topic, Jason, is going to be the finishing, the continuation, the 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 end of the Sleeping Realms theory. It's taken us three episodes. Three episodes. We are going to finish that today. But first, there's some interesting little news. Just some a tiny news. bit of news that we want to talk about. And that's a little bit more of an update on critical mode. Yeah, just a little update. Uh, at GDC, Tai Yusoi, the co-director of Kingdom Hearts 3, was interviewed. He talked about a lot of numerous stuff. But the important thing, the thing that I really was uh, drawn to, drawn to, yes, is critical mode. And how critical mode isn't just, hey, turning up HP and making people harder to hit and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But they're going to have different um, strategies for you to use to defeat enemies. And you have to – you can beat it without leveling up, but you really have to think about what you're doing and really, really take yeah. your time with it, which sounds awesome. And I think it's exactly what the community that's looking for that difficulty wanted, right? Yeah. And they also – he mentioned AI changes and stuff to make things more fair in a, in a critical – um, when 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 you, if you get hit more than a couple times, you'll die, right? So I think that's really cool because there's a lot of a lot of them where it's like, okay, if you get hit by a giga and you're not a giga, you're probably just gonna get one shot, right? Yeah. So like for level one runs, that's just not as fun, you know. So there's something some changes to the AI. Um, well, and he also said it will encourage them stuff. to utilize the game's full array of options, such as cooking meals to gain stat benefits. Right. So it's encouraging people to use everything in the game. This is the quote I have here. It is balanced in a way that you could clear it without leveling up, for example. But you really have to think it through. For example, you have to think about the timing of your guarding and using the counter in order to make battles easier to clear. So I think that's a step in the positive direction, personally. Yeah. What, what, what do you think, Jace? Yeah, no, I definitely think it will be... Well, because like, then that means like level one, you have counter and all that stuff, which is like pretty fun, pretty cool. Um, I'm mainly just like worried about those bosses where like having sp like sped around the game a bunch of times, there's going to be bosses where like, there's like forced health gates. And I, I know people kind of figure out like level one, how to beat the, all the bosses on critical in, in whatever window, skip DM and all that type of stuff. But for like a, a casual critical mode run like i just plug it i just i turn the game on and i'm i just decide to go through critical mode my first time like there's gonna be certain ones i'm gonna be kind of worried about <laughs> just yeah. like how triggering or not they are but i mean i guess that's kind of how it's been in all of the king hearts games. see the thing is though like there's always at least that one boss that's gonna be a pain in the ass i get why you'd say that had been someone that's better in the game but Speed speed run, sped, sped run, sped speed run, speeder speed speed. I get why you would say that. However, yeah. when we were just playing the game through casually, I didn't feel like there was any bosses that were really that annoying. The only one that we really were, you know, lamenting was um, the lich. All yeah. the lich fights, right? Because like when skull obviously is highly annoying in the speed running standpoint. But when we fought Skull, we were like, this is cool. You know what I right, mean? Right, right, right. I don't. I think Critical will have the same effect. I don't think it will be a thing where, like, 
when you're speed running, you're like, oh my god, I want to get this done as fast as possible. Right. But when you're just fighting Skull, like obviously you want to get it done, but you're not like, oh man, you're in the moment. Like this is, I could right. die at any moment. This right. is cool. Right. Exactly. So I don't think that would be a huge problem. I get why why you'd say that though. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not like super worried. Right. But it, it, it's, it's there. It's a worry. It's something you got to think about. Anyway, that's all we're going to talk about for that. We are now going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsor, Audible, like we always do. I don't think it will be Zigbar this time talking to you guys, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have that up. And then uh, we're going to go right back into the Sleeping Realm Theory, and that's exciting to me because I like talking about Kingdom Hearts and how theories. things aren't always as they seem. Yes, I love theories. And, and, and who has a role to play and who doesn't have a role to play. and da 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 da. So we will be right back. You can try, ever the fool boy, and forever, a pawn of the darkness! Hey Jason. Hi. I have a question for you. What is it? Are you enjoying the Anthem Report podcast? Oh yeah, it's so good. Me too, I think it's awesome. You know what's more awesome? Nothing. Nothing, you're right, there's nothing more awesome. But you know what's kind of cool anyway? What's kind of cool? Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash report, you will get a free trial of the Audible service, 30 days, and a free audiobook download to start with. Wow, any audiobook. Any audiobook. They have over 180,000 titles for you to choose from. All read to you. All read to you by some amazing voice actors slash narrators. Wow. And so it's a really cool service. I know... In the past, we, we make joke reads of this because we want to be funny and entertaining, but it actually is a really cool service. You should really check it out by going to audibletrial.com slash Report. Thank you to Audible for sponsoring the show. Welcome back, everybody. We're back here with Answer Report Podcast number 14. This is part three of the Sleeping Realm Theory. If you want to... If you have the document open on Google Docs and you want to uh, be where we are, uh, we are at a part called Light in the Darkness. And right before it, there's a picture of Riku saying never give up right above it. And we're, we're close to the end of this, but we wanted to, you know, give it its time. And we felt like if we just shoehorn this end part uh, in the last episode, it would have not been doing it justice. Don't right. you agree, Jason? Yes. To, to, to catch up where we were, because it's been a week. They're asking the question, when it was time to go back, why, once he saved everybody's hearts yeah. by diving, why is Kyrie the only one mentioned? Why is she the only one that's there when you're you're floating through space? Right, because it's not you saved their hearts, right? Right, but you didn't save Kyrie's. So Sora goes back in time. We see Riku's self-sacrifice scene, a last act of protection through Sora's point of view this time. Reminded of the message Riku's trying to tell him, of strength to protect, of not giving up, before Sora gets plunged into darkness with a single point of bright light. With no direct prompting on his final instinct, Sora calls for Riku, reaching for the light like he reached for him in the KH1 opening, like he reached for the light in the dive to the heart. Just like the dive to the heart, the parallel is intentional. And it does. They have a gif here in the... uh, In the... uh, Document. Document that shows him reaching for the light in the same kind of way he reached for the light multiple times before notably in this scene when Sora yells Riku answer me the light itself begins making an odd ringing sound responding to Sora's call 
and we see him react to it with a look of surprise and awe, all while the light grows brighter before Sora f- calmly flies straight into it. The light leads Sora to Riku's heart first, Olympus. So, yes. Basically, this is where we pick up where we're, pick- we're saving everybody's hearts. Yeah. Um, from the liches. And he finds Riku's heart first in Olympus. Yeah. After calling to the light and following the light. It makes sense. They also parallel to the fact that uh, it's the world before Riku and Sora dive, kind of. Oh, okay. Based on their theory. So yeah. They, they parallel to that. That it's like Kingdom Hearts 2.8. Right. It's the world where Herc says explicitly, I was able to save Meg's life because I was willing to risk my own. The light leads Sora here immediately after we get Sora experiencing Riku's self-sacrificial act for the second time. And to really hammer it home, he finds Riku floating atop a sacrificial tripod, most likely the Delphic tripod associated with Apollo, the god of sun and light. I don't know where they get that info from, but... That's crazy. <laughs> but if that's the case, that's pretty funny. Um, I don't know what... I guess... What do you, what do you sacrifice in it? Well, not that, but like... <laughs> Your best friend? The fact that it's like tied to Apollo... You know what I mean? Like, how, oh. how do you know? Is that what just specifically what that one looks like? I, I don't know where they got that yeah, from, but we'll, we'll take their word for it. Yeah. This is the world with the most direct, explicitly stated parallel of giving up what you're expected to love for what you truly love. And how if you truly love something, you wouldn't leave it. You're, how if you truly love something, you wouldn't leave it. Your life would be empty without it. Sora proceeds to save everyone's hearts except pointedly Kyrie, because her, heart already, her heart's already lost. Returning to the Keyblade Graveyard again... After, again, we do not find Kyrie anywhere. We just kind of run into her on the way. Distinctly, deliberately, she is off to the side. The framing is off. Comparing two instances where Kyrie was the light in the darkness, in Chain of Memories, there's a little ambiguity. She's central. There's little ambiguity. She's central, and, and it's inanimated from her. It is very strange. She kind of almost, the, the gift they like show. It looks like she covers it. It looks like she's like, hey, the light's there, but I'm going to cover it. Yeah. Like, pay attention to me, Sora. Right. So they talk about, in Kingdom Hearts 1, there's a sequence with Kyrie's grandma. Uh-huh. And how Kyrie's grandma tells the story of how these children save the world, right? Yeah. With their light. And they say, Kyrie has been presented as a light for Sora another time in the past. The example called back to the opening cinematic where Kyrie's light showed him the vision of her grandmother. The light tunnel showing Sora's visions isn't in itself strange. After all, that's what Kyrie did in KH1. Okay. Remember that? Yeah. And he's like, where am I? And they show the Kyrie and the grandmother. In fact, Kyrie even echoes what she said in KH1 that kicks off the light tunnel sequence. Her, I simply believed you wouldn't, a mirror to her, I believe in you from back then. But there's one key difference in this obvious callback. Kyrie is clearly the light in this scene because the light leads Sora to a vision of her. He sees her after following it through to the end of the tunnel. Clearly and explicitly, every time either Kyrie or Riku's light has been shown as a tunnel to follow, they've been there at the very end of it. And so you ask yourself this, how is Kyrie supposed to be following her own light back? And oh, if this man. scene were truly meant to be taken at face value, why do we get these specific visions inexplicably in the middle of it? So they show um, the different visions of love that are shown in the Disney worlds at Rapunzel's area and at Frozen's area, and that happens in that cut scene. It shows um, Flynn and uh, uh, Rapunzel hugging, and it shows Elsa and Anna hugging. In very important moments. Sudden visions of self-sacrifice, both referred to as true love, accompanied by the reviving power it has. Except neither Kyrie or Sora has sacrificed themselves for each other at this point, within this context. Sora tries to shield her, 
an act that read as surprisingly desperate and hopeless for the first sign of danger she faced. She faced, like he, his heart, remembered she was going to die in this battle no matter what. But Goofy blocked the attack and nothing came of it. And most importantly, for all the danger she's in, none of Kyrie's scenes read as self-sacrificial. They read as resigned. Hmm. Like she knew she was going to die. This light that Sora assumes is Kyrie, but which she never confirms or denies, a light that led him to Riku's heart originally. This light begins showing him these scenes of self-sacrifice, and Sora makes a confused jerking motion. Like a what? Like he pulls back. Not like a not like a jerking motion when you're like, eh, this guy, right? And you do yeah. like the, the jerk-off <laughs> motion. And in reaction, Kyrie is also confused, which is weird considering if she's the light, she should be the one showing him these visions in the first place. And when they follow the light back to KG, for no reason, we can we can see we get this. I never noticed this, actually. They go into light, and there's a solid five seconds where all we see is white screen and then this shot. Sora outstretches his arm, his other arm. His other arm. His One right arm is arm. holding Kyrie's hand. The other left arm is outstretching. Like as if he's going to hold somebody else's right. hand. We see Sora's right arm outstretched holding Kyrie's hand, but she's omitted from the frame entirely because the focus, what they want you to see, is Sora reaching for the light one last time. A light that shines of him from the very opposite side of Kyrie, and still, and the still frame illustrates this very, very clearly. Yeah, it is pr- brighter on the left side of him. Yeah. The light source is clearly on the left. It doesn't even touch his right arm, therefore Kyrie, until the light takes over the scene. Why did they animate the shot the way they did? In fact, if Kyrie were the light, if we were meant to take this whole scene at face value, for what reason did they include it at all? The light shines. Sora makes a bewildered sound as he reaches for it, and when they land in KG, you clearly see his head was turned away from Kyrie. His eyes are searching for something to the left. In Arendelle, we get these two scenes, one referencing Riku's tendency to withdraw if he thinks it's the best for Sora, protecting Sora, and another referencing finding light in the darkness. It's telling that this is all mentioned in the same world. Okay, so now, the next the next one, <laughs> uh, the next part of this, this theory that I really like is the Riku fist clench. He's, his fist clenches. He, he gets Similar to the mad. Arthur fist clench. Meeting. Yes. It's Riku fist clench. Uh, and there's an Ultimania update to start here first. The Ultimania interview with one of the animation directors confirms two things. Firstly, that they put great consideration to the movement that highlights characters' personalities and natures. First question is, what do you think are KH-esque movements? And the answer from the uh, our animation director here is, movements that make the characters' natures prominent and a mix of serious mood and comical feeling to pull the people watching in. Even though movements from motion capture are real, and you can feel the presence of the motion capture actors, all the movements in the KH series are treated with the utmost care. So there's a lot of charm piled in that can't be pulled off from the acting of people. And secondly, that important fist clenching TM is actually important and something they do consciously. So we've got confirmation that consistent habits like this are on purpose. And then uh, they include a bonus from the Ultimania because every Ultimania interview, they ended with, hey, tell us a secret about the game only you know. Hmm. And th- this uh, animation director... Munori Shinga Wow Munori Munori Shinagawa. That that sounds better than the first time yeah, I said yeah. it, right? The habit Master Zaynor has of making a fist and letting it go, you can see a little during the chess like game the young Xehanort is playing too. I tried to make it a habit he's had since childhood. But he's talking about Kingdom Hearts and then he makes the fist and yes. then he lets it go. He does that a lot, actually. Starting from DD, they made sure to put a constant emphasis on Riku's clenched fists. 
Every time it happens, it's purposefully animated and framed to draw the audience's attention to it as either the biggest or only thing in the frame. They've made you focus on it repeatedly. Not only that, it most often has to do with, surprise, Sora, and the scene they're showing is from DDD, is uh, when Yen Sid is describing the first heroes of the Keyblade. And protecting the And protecting the light. The light. Then there's him talking to Quasimodo, and he, Quasimodo is talking about the real walls were built around his heart, and you helped me see that, Riku. And then Riku clenches his fist again. And then the next scene is also from DDD with young Xehanort talking to Riku. And he talks about protecting those you cherish again. And then Riku clenches, clenches his fist. fist. They've established this as a clear visual cue. Most often when strengthening his resolve and KH3 is no different. Riku's revelation prompted by Mickey about what he's drawing strength from. The cherished person who he wants to protect. Fist clench. Strength to protect what matters. Fist, fist clench. Or when he thinks about Aqua's experience parallel to his own. Fist clench. Culminating in the fist clench before his self-sacrifice, right? After withdrawing his hand from Sora, resolved to do what he has to do. So when Sora's on his knees going, I don't have anybody, everybody's dead. I'm screwed. I'm screwed without them. Riku kind of does like a reach for him and doesn't actually touch him and then clenches his fist. He goes, ugh. Anger. But these aren't the only times he's done it in this game. They're just the most obvious. The ones the game wants you to pay attention to first. Now, with that part in mind, we're moving on to the ending, as they say it. Because the fist clench thing is actually very important to the ending. By now, you should be well aware KH3 has been constantly trying to obscure, hide, and brush off the clues that something else is going on behind the scenes that we aren't privy to. Pretty much everyone thinks it's out of character for Riku to just have let Sora go alone in the ending. But there's a weird emphasis on him when he realizes what Sora's trying to do. In in a blink and you'll miss it. It's a blink and you'll miss it moment. Riku clenches his fist not once but twice. He clenches his fist, purposefully animated, both times just out of focus, slightly obscured but not out of frame. Then comes to an understanding, an understanding none of the other characters seem to reach. So the first one they're showing, he does it, and it's almost even like covered by Donald's head. Yeah. Which does he actually do it? Hold on. Yeah, yeah, he does. You can see he brings his head, his hand goes up. Right, but it looks open when it gets to the other side of Donald's head. I see don't think that? So. No? Okay. And the other one is when Mickey's talking and he does it. And I that one. He kind of does a double fist clench. Yeah, he, he almost does. Yeah, he double, yeah, he fist, double clenches. fist clenches. Oh, oh my God. God. He convinces Mickey and the others to trust in Sora, believe in him, and watches as Sora opens another sleeping keyhole. There are a lot of places, planes, worlds that sleeping keyhole could lead to, considering we're already in the sleeping realm. It's purposely vague, and we're not given all the answers. But it's clear Riku knows something that neither we nor the rest of the cast do. And he's Sora's dream eater, after all. Should Sora go deeper into sleep, he's the only one with the means to follow. Speaking of weird framing, the entire ending sequence is weird. The perspective doesn't make sense for what the game wants you to think is happening at first glance. So they're showing, um, and I've we've talked about this quite a bit, actually, how yeah. Donald's the first one to notice whatever everybody looks at. At least with how they cut it, yeah. Right. He's the first person to notice. And then it shows everybody looking off in the distance. But they're not looking at the tree like the like the ending would lead you to believe. Yeah, they're all looking out at the water. They're looking out at the water, and we still don't know why. But when I first watched it, I was like, oh, they're all looking at the tree where Sora and Kyrie are sitting. But they're not. Not at all, because the tree is to the left of them. Yeah. And I think they say that here. We know from the layout of Destiny Islands, if these characters were by the shack, the point they'd be looking out 
at would be the middle of the ocean, not the tree. And every character is facing the same direction with a look of mild or neutral shock. Or, you know, if you're Mickey Mouse, a smile is as close as he can get. Yeah, he's, he's straight up smiling. And they're all just kind of like, what? Yeah. Main thing is everything he's looking out at the seat, except pointedly the nobody kids. Yeah, Rox is kind of looking to the, the right there, isn't he? He kind of looks like he's looking at the tree. Yeah. We see this with Roxas clearly. He turns to look at whatever else is doing at first before he blinks, notices something off to the side. His line of sight is the last frame of the shot, doesn't match up with any other character in the same frame, and in fact crosses over Aquas. This is clearly animated, clearly deliberate. Both illustrates that none of the other characters were looking at the tree, and this was done on purpose. And then we have the girls, interrupted in the middle of their date. <laughs> They're also the only ones clearly looking at the tree. And while there's a hint of Shion doing it too in the very last frame of the scene, with Naminé it's, it's clear. She's shown as the only character with a clear reaction to what she's seen, a smile. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know if that's a smile from Naminé. Her face definitely changes. She looks like she's kind of smiling. She looks like she could eventually smile. Well, she goes from looking concerned to, like, kind of a smile. It almost looks like a... Not a big smile. I don't know about a smile, but it looks like a, 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 a face of resolve to me as opposed to a smile. Like, she's like, yeah. Mm. That's how I feel. But anyway. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this. A lot of connections between them that would lead to them noticing the tree. They're the kids connected to Sora and Kyrie. They're the only ones there with replica bodies. There's also the difference between them with Roxas looking out at the ocean first, though. And that's what they're... And that's, and that what's there catches his attention first. And that what's there catches his attention first. <laughs> I was like, am I wrong? I can't process this right now. But, and that's there catch, and what's there catches his attention first. So there's the added possibility that whatever it is his connection is, that whatever it is his connection to it is weaker. And the two girls related to Kyrie have the strongest connection to whatever they're seeing. We can't say for sure what the reason is right now, but that these three look at the tree and the others look at something else, something the audience never sees is fact. But that's not the only thing off about the ending. It's not even the biggest. In DDD, Joshua discovers the existence of dream worlds by spotting the time discrepancy. Neku and Rhyme's timers had less time, meaning they were farther in the future than their partners in Sora's dream version of Traverse Town. Dreams can only be of the past. It's why so much of DDD took place in past time periods. Joshua's talking. Jason hates Joshua. I hate Joshua. Remember at the start of this, we told you KH3's been lying to you? Remember the sky in the very last scenes? If Riku was truly behind the tree in this shot, why is the sky behind him completely orange? Why isn't it blue or blue-tinged at all, like in the Sora and Kyrie shot? These two different points of sunset, two different times, two different worlds. Oh, snap. Translation notes. Now, finally, the last issue with the localization. The one with the biggest implications for what really happens in the ending. Sora never explicitly says, we'll both be back in the original version. He says, don't worry. If it's me, no matter what happens, I'll come back. With all the Disney World parallels, all the running themes throughout the game, that half of the Disney World were of accepting separation and it being okay because you're keeping that person in your heart. Sully and Boo of needing to send Boo back to the human world for protection and safety. Elizabeth and Will doomed to living in two different worlds. Hero and the original Baymax and Tashadi, Tadashi. I don't know why I said Tashadi. Tadashi. <laughs> literally dealing with moving on from grief and accepting death. That no matter which world line, Kairi was fated to die and would need to go somewhere else for her own well-being. Sora says this to Xehanort, uncharacteristically serious, like this is a lesson he's come to learn after his whole journey. 
something we don't get to see him experience. A real leader knows that destiny is beyond his control and accepts that. Remember the start of the game where we see a repetition of the end of point two? The scene that's a direct continuation of the very end of DDD? Another game where Sora disappears into a sleeping keyhole alone at the end because of something he has to do? The scene that was repeal, repeated at the very start of KH3, look, like a bookend meant to remind us of Sora's dedication to saying goodbye to all his friends. I just have some stuff that I have to take care of. So when he goes and sees the dream, eater, the dream eaters, and then they, they show the scene of him saying, I just like to say goodbye to all my friends. And in the world Sword and Kyrie are on, we see sunlight flare before abruptly dimming to fade behind a cloud, framing Sora's fading disappearance right before we see it cut to black. Sora leaves in the end, having said goodbye to Kyrie. He leaves and returns to the sleeping realm. So what they're saying, guys, is that Kyrie is in a different world line, and Sora went to visit to say goodbye mm. and come back, just like he did to the Dream Eaters at the end of DDD. Mm. That's what they're saying. How do you feel about that, Jason? That doesn't really make sense because it's like the idea is that in the previous world line, it, they all died. So that doesn't make much sense, right? Right. It could be a different world line, though. Yeah. Is, is there a limit on went, how many world lines there are? Yeah, unless he just went to one where they weren't fated to die and they were. That's just shitty, then. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it just, it's fated to work out. <laughs> right. Okay. So moving on to the secret ending now. If the secret ending confirms anything, it confirms Sora stayed within the sleeping realm and Riku with him as his dream eater. And hey, Riku still has his dream eater hairstyle. He sure does. Ultimate update. This has actually been confirmed by Nomura to take place after KH3 and that when Sora disappears in the ending, he arrives here. More or less exactly as we thought. So the question for Nomura is, I see. Then continuing on, I'd like to ask about the secret movie. Is the location connected to the ending? Nomura says... Yes, after disappearing in the ending, Sora arrives in the world shown in the secret movie. It starts with them waking up on the ground, a telltale sign they've dropped into a dream used over and over in KH3 alone. But this one particularly mirrors their drop in the Traverse Town at the start of DDD. Oh, yeah. Pointed scene as Traverse Town is where we found the world ends with you kids, and Sora ended up where? Shibuya. And this is where so, we don't really... No, and they even correct themselves in the Ultimania here, because he... he the mirror says in the Ultimania, it's not specifically the world ends with you, Shibuya. Yeah. Okay. And that that's what I was trying to tell people, because they're like, oh, the 104 building. The 104 but There's no way that that's that's from the world ends with you. No, it's how they avoid copyright claim, because it's the 109 building. <laughs> that's, that's You're telling me he wouldn't use that again? You know what I mean? If he really wanted to make Shibuya, you're telling me he wouldn't just use that same way they got around it before? I like how every time we've talked about it, you're equally triggered, if people, not more, every just, time. People are just like, oh, it's definitely, it's definitely Shibuya fact. from The World Ends With You. It definitely is. It's a fact. So here's Nomura saying, well, here's the question. Is the place Sora is in the same world as the one in The World Ends With You? And Nomura says, it looks that way. However, rather than saying Sora has gone to The World Ends With You world, the meaning is it's not exactly Shibuya, but Shibuya. No, this is hard to explain in English, but instead of being written in kanji, the name Shibuya is written in k- katakana here. This basically means it's not the same as Shibuya in the world of you or in the real world. Also, although Sora promised Neku and his friends they would meet again in Shibuya, this video is not connected to that. So he's basically saying, hey guys, there can be more than one Shibuya. There's world lines. It's okay. 
Also, like in DDD, they're separated and unsure where they are, searching for each other like before, but this time represented in a fun game of Spot the Colors. So blue-green is Riku's color, and the red-orange are Sora's, and you can see in their trailers that it looks that way a lot. Yeah. The blue light is a little harder to notice, and it's telling that Sora can't see Riku's light directly, just like Riku can't see Sora's. But the lighting inside the car... But the light inside of the car has more of a backlight? Nearly every shot is loaded with some tiny representation of the other. Backlighting, a stoplight, anything, anywhere, they're almost always present in the shot with the other. The sidewalk kind of looks like the Dream Eater symbol that yeah. Riku's standing on at one point. I don't know if I buy like that. It, it could be it. It could be it. <sighs> okay, so Yozora. Yozora being here is, one, wild, but two, another link to the whole dream theme that kind of strengthens things both cases. Seeing as he initially shows up in Toy Box, the world that's a concentrated rehash of DDD mechanics and themes, and now this, another distinct repeated DDD tells that starts like a dream. It's safe to say something to do with dreams is happening. Following up on that DDD theme revolving around Sora and Riku, Yozora can compose almost entirely of aspects of Sora and Riku. Let's make a fun list. He has two colored eyes, red and blue. His name Yozora means night sky. Barim Rex means true king. His outfit is clearly Riku's, though Sora is wearing it in toy box for no unexplained reason. Or for no explained reason. He, at least in Barim Rex, wields an arrow gun and a broadsword, like Sora and Riku. Interestingly, he also can't seem to save the Kairi character. Dang. Dang. Timers. As we already pointed out, timers are always located in the right hand within the actual World Ends With You game, and when the Dream World's DDD, it's on the left. What a strange specific detail only found within Dream Worlds. Hey, Sora, what's you doing when you woke up after? He looks at the palm of his left hand. But it doesn't show a timer either. Right. So I, I don't know what their super point is there. but. And now we're into a part of the, the theory called bonus strangeness. Bonus. Bonus. The general takeaway with KH3 is that we're really not being shown the full picture. It's like trying to put together a puzzle. We have all these pieces, and there's no picture on the dang box. That said... These are several of those pieces that can't be ignored, but don't really fit into any little neat answer. We just don't have all the context to put together what these things could mean, new territory. Stuff that makes you go, huh? Huh? But we're noting it down anyway. Okay, so 2.9. So we're taking note of 2.9 generally because, as it stands, we can't be entirely sure, but a lot of the repeated dream patterns and tells appear in Olympus as much as everywhere else. But for lack of better context and information... We latched onto the identified drop point we could identify and Riku's hair change and move forward. But what we found suspicious is a bit too consistent to ignore. So for one, the end of Dream Drop Distance, Sora dives into the realm of sleep to say goodbye to his friends, the Dream Eaters. You play the drop as the credit, as the credits and see your friends. We just want to put a mental pin in the fact that we ever actually see him come back out of one. In 2.8, we only get to see his return. That's true. So you're saying like it could have never actually started. Like we could have been still... in a dream realm before Olympus, even. Right. They picked that part because they were like, that's where there's a drop, but he could have already been in, already in a dream, uh, the dream realm, yeah. the sleeping realm. Past us, we have Goofy's sudden memory of Yen Sid saying, may your heart be your guiding key, while Donald and Sora have no idea what he's talking about, implying this either happened before or perhaps was influenced in some way, seen as it becomes an incredibly important and powerful phase, phrase from here on out. In Olympus, we have flow motion and attraction flow, both very dream-related in their own right. And then we have more forgetfulness, not just from Sora, but Hercules, too. Um, they're talking about how Sora, Hercules says, Sora, is there a reason you guys are visiting? And Sora, Goofy says, sounds like somebody forgot. And Sora says, oh, yeah, I just took my time remembering. That's not too out of character. But then in Kingdom Hearts 2, Hercules says, I didn't hesitate to give my life for Megs, and then I remembered. 
A true hero is measured by the strength of his heart. I'll never forget that again. But he does. Yeah, do you remember the last time we were together? You were feeling down and out. How'd you get your strength back? When you jumped in and saved Meg? And Hercules goes, hmm, that's tough. All I know is she was in trouble. Suddenly I wanted to save her all my heart, but it's not like I could tell you how. So he knew how after the end of KH2, but then here he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I just think that's poor writing. Yeah. I don't know if that's a... Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Apparently there are other drops. Oh, I forgot about this one. Yeah. In Corona, Marluxia puts Sora to sleep. However, he wakes yeah. up in the same way that Riku does when he gets when he drops That's in true. the world of darkness. I forgot about that. Yep, I did too. I think I think we were too distracted when playing through the game that the plot points of Rapun- of, of Tangled didn't make sense. Yeah. It plays out exactly as it did for Riku. It transitions from the black screen. They're being called out to wake up, and we have a close-up of the face. The only thing different here is Sora gets a lovely bath from Maximus. Now, there's one more similar instance of this during the Caribbean when Sora wakes up on the beach. Sora? And this is after falling into water, our common substitute for darkness. Twice is a coincidence, but three times is a pattern. We can only speculate that these instances are other added drop points each time with Sora going further into sleep. With each new layer, the dream effects crank up. For example, the start of Pirates of the Caribbean, Sora can't breathe or speak underwater despite his best efforts. To boot, Donald Goose, Goofsby, Goofy are gasping for air as the ship resurfaced. But after the supposed dive, he can talk, breathe, and do whatever he wants underwater with no problem. That's true too, Jace. Oh, fuck. Oh, man. How much more do we got of this? We're, yeah. We got about 20, 20, 30 pages, 20, 30 Whew. pages. Do you want to read this True Kingdom Hearts part for me? Yeah, True Kingdom Hearts. As a refresher, there's an important difference between the Yellow Kingdom Hearts versus the Blue True Kingdom Hearts. For starters, there's more than one Kingdom Hearts, and most Kingdom Hearts we've seen thus far have been artificially made. In Kingdom Hearts 1, it was made from the hearts of worlds, and in Kingdom Hearts 2, it's made from the hearts of people, like when you're killing the Heartless and it releases them. Right. Both of these cases have resulted in an incomplete Kingdom Hearts, a door that leads to it and a yellow heart notably there these are the only versions of kingdom hearts Sora has ever personally seen but why would the one from kh3 have the same color as the incomplete version so basically just shows the different types that we've seen previously and that the new the kh3 one is the one of the incomplete so it's also worth noting that in 358 over 2 and BBS were released one year apart, being in development at the same time. The change to blue for BBS was intentional. So basically saying, like, if they're made at the same time, why, it, it's not just a design change. Like, oh, we just decided to make it blue. Like, it, it's, it's pers- purposeful. And then we have another uh, interview question. It says, please tell us something you won't forget about the development process. He said, I've been involved in the series a long time, so I thought more or less had uh, so I thought I had more or less everything figured out. But this time around, I learned for the first time that the real Kingdom Hearts is not blue, but yellow. So it's like for we know for sure that yellow Kingdom Hearts summoned in KH3 was incomplete. We know for sure that blue Kingdom Hearts in KHX was the real true Kingdom Hearts. We know that even the VFX director thought the same. We know for sure that up until BBS 10 years ago, in-universe Kingdom Hearts was blue. The question changes from why is KH3's Kingdom Hearts yellow and not blue and becomes why did the true Kingdom Hearts change from blue to yellow? 
why is the true Kingdom Hearts the same color as the, as the incomplete one? It might have, it might be wholly unrelated to the theory at this point, but it's still mystery worth noting. And so we moved it to bonus. That's interesting, actually. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, because I was, I was with them. I thought the real Kingdom Hearts was blue, and so did the VFX director. But apparently, right. he learned it's yellow. So Namira's changing colors on everybody. Right. Uh, so now they talk about Rage Form, which, um, basically talking about how Rage Form's not anti-form, which is weird. But then it's also weird that yeah. So basically, they're saying like. <laughs> Rage form, like they're like, oh yeah, rage form is an anti form, and then they're like, okay, well, it could be rage form because everybody's already died, right? Right. Like he hasn't had anything to turn him into rage except for oh, he's getting beat up in the fight, like game mechanic, right? But the idea is that even and previously, anti form had like it's like lore, right? Right. So and Nomura's talked about it previously, so it's basically saying that. Like, oh, the mind forgets, but the heart, like, always remembers. And he's remembering that, and that's what's just causing him to go into rage form. So, the question. There's a form that appears called rage form, which reminds us of anti-form from KH2. What is the setup behind that? The forms in this title are very different from that of KH2. So, we decided to change all the names. Rage does indeed have characteristics that are reminiscent of anti but it's basically a separate thing setup-wise. Anti is based on Sora getting completely stained in darkness. Rage doesn't quite go as far. It's based on him going into a rampage state, controlled by feelings of anger. Yeah, my problem with Rage Form is that I get it. Enlighten in me. The last, yeah. Enlighten me. That That's the problem with Rage Form. Is yeah. It's like... It's not darkness, it's rage, but he says enlighten me, and he goes in the rage form, not anti-form. So, yeah. Well, then it's like you have to get your light back. Right, yeah. A little weird. Riku's Halo. Our next point of interest is actually the proud mode ending screen. The art itself is just the Kingdom Hearts Union Cross anniversary done up with a nice background. Nothing new to report. But really, there's one tasty little detail. Riku has a halo. Not exactly like a literal angel halo, but a symbolic halo. An encirclement around the head, usually used to represent light or some kind of enlightenment or power. For the sake of argument in that there's that's there that it's there to simply make the image look good. It's definitely a neat com- composition. It draws the eye well, it's offset in a way that's weighted well too. This is all fine and good. But just because it's a good art comp doesn't mean there is an intent behind it. In fact, symbolism is usually chock full of intent. Speaking of intent, this design is actually not used that often for anything else. In fact, this pattern encirclement is used one other time on one of the most symbolically loaded scenes in the game. On the mirror within the dive to the heart. A bit faint with the angle, especially when the focus here is on Sora, but... And you can see the halo. It's definitely there. So Sora passes through it, and what do we get the other side? We get Riku. Riku is the light in the dark. So Riku Nort might actually be two different Rikus. The Riku Nort we see in San Francisco is distinctly different in attitude compared to how he acts later on in KG. He's calm, smug, more calculated, and skeptical of plans, but rolling with them anyway. The Rikunort we see later was prideful, brazen, taunting, and basically battle-hungry. Brat, 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 brat. Just how we see, just how Repliku acted during Chain of Memories. Not to mention they're literally wearing two entirely different outfits, and I can't say I spot a dark mode suit under that coat. Not that we could have just put it on later, I guess. 
So seeing as KH3 has done a thorough job of letting audiences assume and fill in the gaps, it's very likely that in this case of leaving just enough connection to let you think that it's a singular Riku. In San Francisco, Sora and company assume that he must be Riku when possessed by Ansem. A sound reasoning, and he doesn't entirely deny it, but leaves it open. This seems to happen a lot. Later, in the Keyblade Graveyard, Mickey also comes in. Wait, Mickey also comes to the same conclusion, voiced exactly the same way. This Riku also doesn't deny it. This is easy for us, the audience, to make the connection and fill in that gap. We're led to do so purposefully, whether it's correct or not. So later, when it proves to us that it's not, in fact, not Riku when he was possessed, but Repliku which makes sense with his behavior, this throws any and all spoken word out of the window. Characters can be wrong. This can be assumed incorrect, and they can even lie. So that leaves us with whatever contextual clues it shows us instead. Considering that the same Riku we're shown later... Wait, the same Riku we're later shown... Considering if this is the same okay, Riku. Okay. Considering if it is the same that's shown in KG, this conversation with Pete and Maleficent in San Francisco, a world brought up both time travel and recreating things in data doesn't add up. So he says, overstep and darkness will consume you again. What an interesting thing to say. I shall do anything I please, as you should. Oh, I intend to. Who's he, friend of yours? Though I could tell you. She says, yes, though I couldn't tell you from when. Basically saying that Maleficent, like, knows. Right. Which mean it? Which would mean it's Ansem, it's Riku Nort. Yeah, but the other one is clearly the replica. Yeah, he speaks very knowingly of Maleficent and past actions from Kingdom Hearts One, while also hinting at hidden motives that otherwise aren't addressed. This sits especially strange thrown in the face of what we see later from who we know to be Repliku. That and Maleficent's response seems to indicate it's at least a Riku she has known, while also suggesting that she was aware that Riku Nort wasn't who he said he was. When Riku when possessed by Ansem S.O.D. We also have a stark contrast in how they respond to being the real Riku, which is honestly pretty telling. The Riku in Big Hero 6 has no issue with it. He even goads them for needing to figure it out. And that means he's not really Riku. Smarter than you look. When Repliku at the KG fights it to his little dying breath. No, you're not real. I'm the real one. To boot. There is one unexplained scene with, within Recoder that is a perfect chance to no nap Data Riku. It shows up suddenly, much to the confusion of Mickey, Jiminy, and others. And it's a scene with what Ansem's Secret of Darkness looks like in his brown, when it's just his heart. Yeah. It's like the brown cloak thing. And Riku, and they're stepping into a portal. The scene ends here with a follow from Jiminy saying how this never happened, or at least he didn't write it in the journal at all. So we're left with this. Riku Nort 1. Data Riku. Organization coat, calm and smug demeanor, doesn't get his hands dirty, calls plans into question, based entirely around data and uses actual bug blocks from Recoded. No qualms with not being real, has ulterior motives. Riku Nort 2, Repliku. Dark mode suit, aggressive and cocky attitude, very ready to get his hands dirty, follows orders willingly, insists he's real till death, actually confirmed to be a Repliku, loves long walks on the beach. <laughs> so what they're trying to tell us, Jason, what this... What these guys are trying to tell us is that there's Riku. The actual Riku. The actual Riku. There's the spirit or heart of Repliku mm-hmm. inside Riku. Yep. There's the Repliku we defeat at the Keyblade Graveyard. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's Data Riku, who's in Big Hero 6. Yeah, so Data Riku from Recoded has been like, that Riku's been nabbed. And now he's he's in the real world. And so they're trying to say there's four Rikus in this game. Yeah. Wow. You could even say five if you're like, oh, it's Riku, and then like Dream Riku. The idea of Riku leaving to do whatever he wants only to be replaced isn't out of the question either. Seen as Demix, completely vanishes and vex and defects. Data Riku wouldn't be the first. Nominee. The next part is about best girl nominee. We generally learn two rules about how to bring people back via replicas. That one, the replica bodies need to be the right me- needed the right memories loaded in it, and two, the heart has to be otherwise assimilated. Needs a strong emotional reaction to spark it back into being. The following strictly what's visually presented to us, we're led to believe everyone got their happy ending at the cost of source sacrifice. But assuming this is chronological whatsoever, Kyrie's still missing at this point. So how was Namine here at all when they would need Kyrie's heart to pull from her to begin with? Nomura has since elaborated a little bit on what happens with Namine, though it still doesn't really answer the question. Question. How did Ansem the Wise and Enzo and the others move Namine's heart into a vessel without Kyrie being there? Answer. When Kairi was defeated the first time in the Keyblade Graveyard, Namine's heart was thrown into the final world, right? And Namine's heart was also thrown out just before the final battle when Kairi was hit by Xehanort's attack. I do plan to show the details of what happened after that. Oh, man. So while we still don't know why, she, how or why she's here, Kairi's heart is still a mystery. It's at least knowledge that we don't have all the info and should be shown, shown somewhere down the line. Speaking of Kairi, Shion, please explain. Shion says, Kairi will be all right. I can feel it. Not only is Shion's return not fully explained or made a whole lot of sense of what we know, she has some newfound ability to sense Kairi. And then uh, Ultimania update. Nomira has since stated in an interview that upcoming DLC will go into Shion and how she's here, so hooray. It's not beyond Kingdom Hearts to pull something like this out of the blue, like Riku's weird stinky darkness smelling ability that conveniently disappeared. He was embarrassed. But given the amount of suspicious activity surrounding Kairi to begin with, it's not hard to believe something purposeful is being done here as well. Yeah. Stinky darkness ability. <laughs> um, <clears throat> two Keyblades. Yeah. Two Keyblades this is what This part's weird. Can, uh, can, you, can you read this line and try to do the Axel voice? <laughs> I can try. Uh, one of the bigger head scratchers of the game is how in the god dang hell does Roxas have two keyblades? <laughs> we know from previous games that both Sora and Roxas were able to wield two keyblades due to Ven's heart being inside them. Now with Ven restored, there's no way either of them to dual wield, and yet. We also have to know full well Nomura knows his own lore and pre-established rules, seeing as he made direct reference to it in Utada's cover art for Face My Fears, you know, where she wields two keyblades. He directly comments on it in his countdown post. He said, seven days ago, this is the last countdown picture. Today, Face My Fears, the OP and EDC to go on sale. I myself drew the cover art. The fact that she has two keyblades must mean she must have two hearts. Oh, no, the character limit, Nomura. <laughs> this is one more example on the long list of examples where the game presents you with something without explicitly calling attention to it and lets you assume what you will. Oh, Roxas is always that oath keeper in oblivion. This is normal, your brain says. Of course, when he makes his big comeback, he'd have his iconic look. But if we know the rules and Nomira knows the rules, who's wielding two blades? Well, still Roxas, but maybe two of them, kind of, perhaps. This isn't any hard answer, but this is something that should definitely be kept in mind. 
Another scene where something is brought up and never touched on again. We have Yenzo still willing away, trying to bring back Roxas by constructing his heart with data. Something touched on in San Francisco. Yenzo says, we've come a long way towards reconstructing Roxas' heart, but a vessel without that. It's the backup plan or nothing now. He's very far along, but the most pressing issue is the matter of finding a body. Then he's sure up given a vessel, dropped right at his feet. Problem solved, right? Sure, if we didn't see Roxas' heart leave Sora's body at the site of Axel Sheen in danger. Assuming, of course, this is that this is Roxas's heart in the first place, though there's always room for more trickery. Seeing as Roxas somehow ascends from the heavens at the speed of light, this arrival calls a lot of things into question. So what happened with his nearly complete data heart? Why has he got two keyblades? Is it the data heart? Is it inside him? How did he even get here? Lots of questions. Right. And we don't know. We don't know the answers. They go on a little more about um, different different pieces of content that kind of kind of prove that their theory could be accurate because Nomura's done some wild stuff before. Like, oh, the, you know, whatever. Like that, it's not important. It's not important. This was a great theory that we just went through. Um, shout out to all the people that made that theory happen because it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts on this theory, Jason? <sighs> no, I just really want to know whether or not Best Boy is dead or not. Sora? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's tough to know. I don't think he's dead. I think we, we haven't seen the last of him. But anyway, I don't have any final thoughts on this right now. I still got to push it all in my brain. But yeah, we'll see once the DLC comes out. We're just basically waiting with bated breath for this DLC. We want to know what you guys think about this theory down in the comments below uh, or by any other means that we talked about getting a hold of us. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching. We will see you guys next week. I don't know what we're talking about next week. This is the first time in a few weeks I don't know what we're talking about. But we're going to figure something out. Hopefully some cool news drops and then we can talk about that. Otherwise, we'll have a fun episode where we talk about some random stuff next week. So thank you guys for watching. Jason, hit him with it. May your heart be your guiding key.